The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The end of the Civil War, often identified as taking place at Appomattox, ended for major land combat, actually in North Carolina. It's a phase of the war that for many Civil War enthusiasts seems like an afterthought, like the fourth quarter of Alabama pounding Notre Dame by four or five or six touchdowns. But for those who were there, it was as significant as any other moment at Shiloh or Antietam. We'll talk about the end of the war in central North Carolina today with Ernest Dollar, director of the City of Raleigh Museum, on Civil War Talk Radio. on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you today from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex at my home office here in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, but uh, still speaking as, uh, not a, and still not speaking as a representative of East Carolina University, uh, but still on the payroll, still on the clock. It's a Friday before spring break, but speaking always, as always, for myself, and likewise, our guest will do the same for himself today. As we talk about the end of the war in North Carolina, uh, it is springtime now, the beginning of March in 2013. It's a Friday afternoon, and people are leaving. The students, like rats fleeing the sinking ship, are leaving campus for spring break that begins at the end of classes today. And uh, I'm accommodating uh, other scheduled needs uh, and then doing the show from home. I'll be back in the office later if you're looking for me. That's in case uh, Dean White is listening. Uh, but for the afternoon, taking care of some business here. So I'm staring at my computer screen and realizing I don't have the usual uh, software that I have. I don't have the program listing, for example, who the upcoming guests are on the show. And then it struck me 
there's no more useful site on the entire interweb than impedimentsofwar.org, where we can always find out what's going on on Civil War Talk Radio. So I'm looking at that myself as, as we speak and uh, looking and see there are the archive shows, and here's what's coming up in the weeks ahead. We don't have any show live show next week or the week after, or indeed the week after that. We're taking uh, a break to deal with some uh, 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 other things, uh, spring break being one of them. And then uh, the following week, it will be the conference, the uh, 300th uh, anniversary of the Tuscarora War. And uh, I'll hope you will indulge me as I again go off topic from the Civil War to uh, mention that just because it's being uh, conducted here at East Carolina University and is something that is not well known. Uh, I've studied history. Uh, I have a degree from Harvard University, in case I haven't mentioned that in the last few shows. And yet, uh, the Tuscarora War doesn't get a lot of press. Uh, 1713, uh, and it took place in eastern North Carolina, not very far from where I'm sitting here in Greenville. The survivors of the tribe, uh, some remained uh, in North Carolina, <clears throat> and some of their descendants will be here uh, for this event, uh, the weekend of March 22nd. Others were essentially deported to New York State, where they think of themselves as North Carolinians in exile even three centuries later. Uh, it's quite remarkable. They came to uh, visit us here uh, during a conference last year dealing with North Carolina history, and uh, really people hadn't even known they were there uh, and still active. So many of them will be coming back to participate. So if you're interested uh, in colonial history and uh, American Indian history as well, that will be an event worth taking part in. You can look it up online. It's called the New Haruka 300th Commemoration. After that, March 29th will be Good Friday. No live show then. Then uh, we're back to it. April 5th, Brian Jordan joins us to talk about his new book on the Battle of South Mountain called Unholy Sabbath, uh, about South Mountain in history and memory. And then we've got Rhonda Cole, who has written an interesting new regimental history on the 5th Illinois Cavalry. It's called The Prairie Boys Go to War. And April 19th, we'll have Earl Muldering III talking about New Bedford's Civil War. So uh, that's for the month of April. We'll have additional guests, uh, some already lined up, but a few gaps in the schedule through the rest of the season. So I'll get those filled in and let you know who's coming up next. Uh, a number of, of interesting uh, candidates. As always, your suggestions are welcome. Please send ideas for who you'd like to hear on the show, and I'm happy to try to get them on. And uh, in addition to uh, your suggestions, uh, your dollars are equally welcome. You can send your contributions to Civil War Talk Radio, CivilWarTR at AOL.com is the PayPal address. There's a button on the screen at Impediments of War. The deductions are not tax-deductible, or the contributions, I should say, are not tax-deductible. And remind everyone of that as tax day approaches. I was doing my taxes, and I was careful not to masquerade as a nonprofit and uh, declared your contributions appropriately so I can stay out of the big house for another year. Uh, but uh, you can't deduct them either. So uh, 
all you get for that is a copy of one of my books, if you're so inclined, or just the good feeling of having helped out uh, this uh, show produce new shows uh, by buying books that I can read and talk about. And with that said, we've got our business taken care of. We'll turn now to our guest today. Uh, I, I, when I said your suggestions are welcome, uh, not kidding, uh, I was giving a talk not too long ago and uh, a Civil War talk radio listener introduced himself and we chatted a while and he said, you've uh, have, have you met the director of the, the new museum in Raleigh? I had not. He said he knows everything about uh, the Civil War in Central North Carolina. You've got to have him on the show. And so here we are, uh, happy to bring on the show uh, director of the City of Raleigh Museum, Ernest Dollar. Mr. Dollar, are you there? Indeed. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, you uh, it, it, you and I have talked a few times on the phone just getting this organized, uh, but you're, you're, you're a new face in the... the uh, uh, the Civil War scene here. Well, I shouldn't say that. New, new to me certainly, but um, but the city, the city of Raleigh Museum itself is relatively new. Um, right. Let's start with you. With uh, how did you get to be uh, director there? Uh, that's, that's a it's a, a wonderful story. Um, the the nonprofit Raleigh City Museum was established, I think, back in the early 1990s, and like most small museums, they kind of had been suffering monetarily over the past couple of years, and so they just recently, within the past year, went to the city and said, hey, uh, we're getting ready to close our doors unless we get some help. So the city stepped in, uh, took over operations of the city museum, and uh, put out a call for all new staff and all new directors and uh, trying to look for a new plan forward for this museum. So um, I had uh, I was sort of in the job market, and it's a wonderful opportunity, and slid it over to Raleigh. Uh, well, excellent. What, what did you do before uh, working at the museum? Uh, I had an equally, equally wonderful job. Um, I was the um, executive director of the Preservation Society in Chapel Hill. So my office was an antebellum home right on Franklin Street across from UNC's campus. Uh, so did you always want to be a historian? Is this a, a, a long-time goal? I think so. Um, uh, I my, my undergrad degrees were in art and history, and museums sort of were the place where art and history kind of cross, and it seems like a, a perfect job for somebody who loves art and history, and to actually get paid to do it is extra wonderful. So um, I've worked in you know historic sites and museums uh, since I graduated from college. Well, that, that is the fun part uh, in, in teaching public history to students at ECU, certainly. Uh, one sees the look in their eyes, the excitement of the thought I could work in a museum, I could get paid to work in a museum, a great thing. Uh, but it's pretty competitive, so uh, congratulations on reaching uh, uh, the status that you have there. Thanks. So uh, what about, uh, where, where did the war feature in your, your historical interest? Is this... Um. It, it happened when I was in college, um, uh, and, and growing up in central North Carolina, uh, I was introduced to a lot of uh, the, the relic hunting community, and I was just blown away that people could go out into these fields and woods that I passed every day growing up 
and find these relics dropped by soldiers, you know, 130 years earlier, and uh, you would just have these sort of things that I'd only seen in museums that you could kind of go out and just find. So that was sort of my introduction, and the more I kind of researched the history of of where these things came from and what they were, I really discovered that Central North Carolina has got a wonderful, deep history of the Civil War that I had never learned in school and never heard about, But uh, and I was kind of shocked to, to discover all of this history, and that's kind of what put the talks in my system to sort of stay with it and kind of really dwell down onto the experiences of the people here and what happened here in 1865. Uh, well, definitely we're going to talk uh, extensively about that, but when you talk about relic hunters, uh, especially as somebody who's worked in historic preservation, mm-hmm. uh, did there come a moment after after the initial delight in realizing, hey, you can pick up a mini ball here, of realizing um, you shouldn't be picking this stuff up? Uh, exactly. So, uh, you know, it's definitely moving on to the preservation, uh, field like I did. Um, you really saw the value in, 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 in keeping these historic relics in the ground. But one of the things that sort of compromises the story, especially in central North Carolina around the research triangle, is that we are such a fastly growing and progressing and developing area that because people did not know this history, so much of it was being destroyed that um, development far outpaced preservation. So uh, I've kind of took my, my interest and love in history and local history and sort of rolled that into being a preservationist and trying to advocating through telling the history of these places and these events to actually going out and advocating for their um, preserving. North Carolina has a, a fairly strong governmental infrastructure for preservation compared to some states, uh, although it, it's hard to tell where, where the current uh, legislature will take that and the rest of state government over the next several years. Uh, certainly the rumors we're hearing in Greenville are not encouraging about how uh, The same here in Raleigh. <laughs> uh, but, if, but we do have a Department of Cultural Resources that... Uh, that at least hires people with commitment to preservation. So, so it seems like we're we're a little bit ahead of the game there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you you mentioned this in your intro that so many people know so little about this this the end of the war in Central North Carolina. Like you said, it's sort of the the fourth quarter of the Civil War history. That I think uh, the ignorance has has really been a factor in not motivating people to preserve these places just simply because the history of of the end of the war in North Carolina has been largely unwritten and forgotten about. And that's sort of what, as as I've evolved in sort of trying to learn the history and then kind of promoting the history, is to try and understand why why was that? Why have we as as Americans and Civil War scholars sort of sort of written off this this final campaign of the Civil War and sort of the, to me that is sort of my thinking and evolution on the the events about why has this largely gone forgotten well let's get into that then what um, what first when you talk about the end of the the war in North Carolina what how do you define that are we talking about the beginning of April 1865 uh, earlier later well um Mostly, uh, war comes to Central North Carolina thanks to William T. Sherman, and uh, I basically start really looking at um, when Sherman steps out of his camps and on April 10th, 
from Goldsboro heading west to chase the army of Joseph E. Johnston, that's sort of the, this final campaign that culminates in the surrender in, here at Durham Station. So um, basically from April 10th to about May 3rd is an, is an incredible couple of weeks in, in American history. And uh, it's just fascinating that um, some of these Herculean events and personalities and this, you know, uh, amazing time have not been, again, written about largely. You say April 10th, and of course April 9th is Lee's surrender. So, again, to the average uh, person who knows a little bit about the war, uh, the war is officially ended when Lee surrenders, and yet you're saying the next three weeks there's there's a lot worth learning about. Right, and I think, you know, our, our memory of the war... Um, when you compare the Appomattox campaign to Sherman's final campaign in North Carolina, there are some striking differences that, uh, the Appomattox campaign is very cut and dry. You know, Grant and Lee at Appomattox, very much of a noble ending. Um, it's, you know, the Confederacy surrounded and forced to surrender. But the surrender in North Carolina is, is much more complicated. Um, it's got much more, many more nuances. Um, it takes a lot longer. It's messy. And um, and I think it's just easier for us to say, ah, the war ended Appomattox, easy enough. But you know, even uh, after the surrender of North Carolina, there are two more surrenders um, in in Indian Territory in Citronelle, Alabama. So you know, the war doesn't really just stop on a dime at Appomattox. Uh, it just kind of uh, it kind of fizzles out. And from my thinking, is sort of to to examine how this fizzle out, how this messy ending tells much more about. It sort of foreshadows Reconstruction, how that shapes up by looking at sort of this ugly end of the war in North Carolina. I wonder if the, the emotional, uh, I mean, when you put it that way, it, it seems clear that the, the emotional appeal of a neat ending uh, is perhaps some of the reason why that why, why the interest is not there in the post-epimatics era. A lot of people study history out of a desire to escape contemporary times it seems like it's nice to go back to a time when things were simpler and there weren't any complex moral or political issues just good guys and bad guys and uh, of course you and i know anybody who seriously reads history realizes things were just as complicated then as ever but april 9th provides as you say that nice dramatic clean uh ending it 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 it, it puts a, a cap on it and yet here we go. There's, there's the bloodshed side over. There's more to be resolved. And, and certainly, and you know, uh, looking at the war in North Carolina, that um, the war could have turned out very differently depending on you know, what happened in North Carolina. You know, this was the still the last major Confederate army operating in the field, um, and it is a it is a, a interesting time where you know law and order is breaking down, um, anarchy is rampant. Um, and it is, it is just sort of a, it could have really evolved into that ugly guerrilla war if Jefferson Davis had had his way. That, you know, the war could have been, um, could be carried on a lot longer. Uh, the terms at which, you know, Johnston and Sherman had agreed upon, um, basically did what the Appomattox agreements did not do, uh, initially. So, uh, you really look at, you know, certainly you could say the war ended Appomattox, but looking at the surrender of North Carolina is where the peace began. Uh, and sort of really talked about, um, broached those subjects of how would Southerners be readmitted to the Union? 
um, under what terms? Um, what would sort of the, the peace look like that uh, Sherman had tried to basically to end the war in North Carolina? And so well, there's. It's, uh, Let, let's. I'm going to just interrupt for a second. We're going to take a short break because we've got some excellent questions to to explore there. What what might have happened otherwise? Uh, as opposed to what did happen. And we'll talk about both those topics, what did happen and what might have happened. Our guest today is Ernest Dollar. He's the executive director of the City of Raleigh Museum. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ernest Dollar, Executive Director of the City of Raleigh Museum. We've been talking about the War in Central North Carolina, where you find Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, the Research Triangle, uh, where, of course, uh, Joe Johnston surrendered in 1865. And we talked a little bit about, in our first segment, about why this aspect of the war doesn't get uh, a whole lot of press, partly, uh, in large part, certainly, because it's overshadowed by the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia on April 9th, 1865. But had things gone differently over the next several weeks, we might uh, be in a very different place. Not to say the Confederacy would have won the war, but things certainly could have been different. Uh, let's see, uh, Ernest, do you go by Ernest or Ernie? Is a, what, What's appropriate for you? Hmm, either one works. Okay, but we'll, uh, don't, don't want to... Uh, I ask it because I go by Jerry, and please call me that. If, if I hear Gerald, it is usually my mother who is uh, talking to me, and so I have to pay strict attention at that point. Uh, well, let's set the stage for what we're talking about here. April 10th, uh, Lee has surrendered. 
Where is Sherman's army? Where is Johnston's army? How big are they? What what are their prospects? What's well, what's um, this seem like? The in April, both armies are sort of licking their wounds after Bentonville. Um, Sherman had sort of marched through South Carolina, through Lower North Carolina, and made his way to Goldsboro, which he sort of linked up with the coast and resupplied and, and augmented his army. Uh, Johnston is about 20 miles away in the, in the town of Smithfield, his army, which he sort of is putting together a patchwork army from what's left of the Army of Tennessee, all of these sort of um, coastal artillery units which are converted into infantry. So it's truly a calico army. Um, uh, it's in Goldsboro that Sherman receives news that Grant has pushed Lee out of Petersburg and is heading west. Uh, initially, Sherman was going to be heading to Virginia to combine with Grant to, to sort of, again, make that dual attack on Lee. But since Lee is dislodged, um, Grant contacts Sherman and says, you know, push for Johnston. That's, that's your next uh, uh, target. So on April 10th, uh, Johnston starts retreating west using the rail line across central North Carolina, and, and Sherman starts pursuing him. And, um, you know, this the news of Lee from, from Petersburg is some of the best news that Sherman's army has had throughout the war. And they can really sense that, that this is the final campaign, that peace is at hand. Uh, on opposite, the Confederates are starting to hear these awful rumors about the, the, the you know, news from, from Lee. So you really start to see Johnston's army break down as it moves across the Piedmont, and Sherman's is so invigorated that they, they push harder and harder. Now, um, one of the interesting things I think that we are talking about why this campaign has been forgotten is that if, if we look at what Sherman wanted to do when he stepped foot out of Atlanta the previous November is that he specifically designed his campaign through Georgia and the Carolinas to be a psychological warfare campaign. You know, there's there's wonderful quotes from Sherman who tells you exactly what he wants to do. You know, he says, my aim then was to whip the rebels, to humble their pride, to follow them in their innermost recesses and make them fear and dread us because fear is the beginning of wisdom. So, Marching through South Carolina is perhaps one of the most dirtiest chapters of the American Civil War because this is really where the gloves have come off for the Union war effort and and many of these soldiers are so angry about the war that they really take it out on who they believe started the war. So as they start getting closer to peace, um, you think you find these, these Union diaries becoming quite guilt-ridden over what they had done through the Georgia and Carolinas. Um, so as they move through central North Carolina, you see them start to de-evolve sort of back into their civilian selves and start to have a little bit of guilt. Um, Johnston's army kind of starts to see the handwriting on the wall, and they start sort of dissipating, start leaving the army, because they are unsure of their own fate. Um, if this war does end, will they be executed as traitors, put in prison camps? Um, and and because the, the, the army's structure is breaking down, they become desperate for food and supplies. So the civilians in central North Carolina really start suffering at the hands of both armies. But the, really the kicker for this whole sort of a March time frame in central North Carolina is that Lee's army has been paroled, and they start streaming south, you know, thousands of hungry soldiers, and they collide with Johnston's army, and they collide with Sherman's army. So it's almost a perfect storm in this post-Lincoln assassination world. So emotions are like roller coasters for everyone. Um, you know, happy about winning, sad about Lincoln's death, happy about victory, you know. 
So it is a, it's an emotional, um, you know, hurricane in central North Carolina. And I think that's one of the main reasons that, um, that this experience left such a, um, a traumatic experience on soldiers and civilians alike that, you know, it was painful for people to remember. The, the idea of, of Lee's veterans returning is, is a fascinating one. And it conjures up to, to carry out our image from earlier in the fourth quarter of a, a lopsided football game. Uh, it, it's as if the, the fans are streaming on the field, but the games, there's, there's two teams still playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet here are these, these soldiers, former soldiers now coming home. Uh, obviously that, that would have had a dramatic effect on, on whoever they encountered. So, so Johnson's men, Johnson's men are starting to, to leave the ranks. I mean, they've, they've been doing so, but certainly as a result of this influence that has to uh, affect them. Is there still, is there still fighting going on while this is happening? Yeah, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, even, um, even up to the final day of, of the surrender negotiations between Sherman and Johnston, you see sort of the, the armies are frozen in place, but you see these cavalry patrols going out and sort of bumping into each other. Um, and, and you just see soldiers unaware of, of what's, what's really going on. And yeah, people are, are dying up to the very end. So, and, and they're influenced, obviously, by the emotion of Lee's surrender, uh, also by the assassination of Lincoln. In studying this period, do you find references to that in in the sources uh, of, of the soldiers on either side? Uh, and, and certainly, looking at the experience of Union soldiers is kind of unique, because as I said a minute ago, that you know, as as these guys have really, in their minds. Uh, extracted justice from South Carolina for starting the war. And as they, they start to sort of thinking about returning to civilian life, and returning to loved ones, to victory, they're quite elated. And the news of Lincoln's assassination was a, was a, was a horrible jolt for them because, uh, you know, with, with Father Abraham, who they, they loved immensely, assassinated by this cowardly actor at the very end of the war at peace, you know, it was just um, a, a lot for them to take. And there's a in, in, there's a great story with uh, General John A. Logan, who's one of uh, Sherman's corps commanders. That when the news hit Sherman's camps as they were camped around Raleigh, um, you just have the most heart wrenching um, letters about men recording their thoughts and just how sad they were. But this sadness quickly turned to anger. And um, the night that the news reached the Sherman's camps in Raleigh, that there's a mob that marches on the state capitol to burn out this rebel town, you know, put it to the torch like they had done Atlanta and Columbia. And it was Logan who sort of headed off this mob and threatened to use his artillery to fire his own men if they did not, like, you know, go back to camp and sort of calm down. So, you know, uh, that night, Raleigh really kind of balances on the head of a pin between destruction and salvation. So it's just an example of how these emotions are just pulsating almost out of control at this time period in central North Carolina. You mentioned also in our, our first segment that uh, the, the soldiers are fighting on, uh, of course, because Johnson has not surrendered. But uh, one reason Johnson doesn't surrender immediately is because his commander-in-chief doesn't want him to. Indeed, Lee actually goes against uh, what Davis wanted. 
what did David want, and why do you think he, he gave the orders he did? What, what, first, what did he tell his armies to do? Well, you know, um, Jefferson Davis is, is fleeing from Richmond, comes through Danville, goes to Goldsboro, and then meets Johnston. And Johnston basically says, you know, um, spare my soldiers, spare the citizens of North Carolina. There's nothing left to do but surrender. So Davis approves this negotiation with Sherman. Um, they meet on April 17th, and the next day um, the surrender terms are approved. Now, these are uh, an incredible set of of, of of terms. Um, one set is sent to Washington and one is sent to Jefferson Davis who's moved on to Charlotte. But once these terms are rejected by Washington, Davis sort of rejects them as well and, and orders Johnston to um, disband the infantry and tell them to to rendezvous at a specific site, keep the cavalry together, and somehow we can again deliver victory to the South. But Johnston knows this is sort of a fallacy goes against Davis, sends Sherman a note saying, let's meet one more time and basically agree on the same terms that Lee and Grant had signed at Appomattox. So in Davis's mind, he still could not accept defeat and was willing to sort of turn the Civil War into an ugly guerrilla war. And that's really, I think, a critical point that, uh, that Davis was willing to do that uh, and equally critical that both Lee and Johnston were not. Certainly, Anyone who studies the Civil War at some point gets in a hypothetical discussion about whether the South could have won or not, and uh, there are a lot of people who will argue that the North had too many resources, too many uh, soldiers, etc. But you can look at American history at uh, other examples, starting with our own revolution and, and uh, up through the Vietnam War, where the side with the most resources wasn't the side that won the military struggle. If what do you think if Johnston had told his men, let's do what the president says, take your muskets, disband, but but keep fighting. Go to your homes and, and fight from the swamps, fight from the hills, be a guerrilla soldier for the next 10 or 15 years, and eventually they'll get tired and leave us alone. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to say, but, you know, um, it, I suspect that, you know, most Soldiers were tired of fighting. Most civilians were tired of fighting, but there were still a core of, of Johnston's army who still wanted to, to carry on and fight. But I think once they saw you know their world melting around them and their cause um, unattainable, that they basically threw in the towel. But to, to carry it forward, um, it's curious to look at in central North Carolina after the war is when you see uh, a high concentration of Ku Klux Klan activity and racial violence, you know, 1870 to 71, we've got sort of the Kirk Holden War, where um, the, the state militias are fighting Klansmen. So uh, it's interesting to sort of say, did the surrender here in central North Carolina play some part uh, to set off a lot of this, this post-war violence? So, I mean, that could factor in to sort of look at if this guerrilla war scenario, what it would have looked like. Yeah, and that's one of the answers I've heard when people say, well, there could have been a guerrilla war. One answer is, well, there was a guerrilla war. Yeah. Uh, that, that you did see this kind of organized violence against the government continuing on for another 10, 15 years. Uh, so, but for the most part, uh, but, but it was not organized in the sense that Lee and Johnston did not authorize it. Sure. Uh, that they, they were willing to go, go back. What, how, do you know anything about how North Carolina's black population was responding to the end of the war? 
Um, but, you know, the, the WPA slave narratives are, are a wonderful set. And you can almost, um, and, and this is a real source that, um, of the few books that have been written on the end of the war in North Carolina, that a lot of them do not include these African-American perspectives. And it's pretty fascinating that you can just sort of see um, freedmen sort of putting their agency into effect right away by telling where old masses silver has been hidden. Um, a lot of them are leaving the plantations. Most of them are are pretty frozen in place because they they've been told by their masters to you know the Yankees will kill you if they find you. Um, they're unsure about Union soldiers. They're you know they're still sort of on under Confederate areas. So, but as soon as you know the federal soldiers arrive, they they are elated. You know you have these wonderful stories about you know celebrating for weeks and days about emancipation. Huge exoduses of people moving around looking for lost loved ones. So I mean, it's a, it's a again. If you think the story of the Civil War in North Carolina is is unwritten, the story of African Americans at the end of the war in this area is is really not recorded. So you mentioned the slave narratives that are recorded, as you say, in the 1930s as as one source, and there there really aren't a lot of, of written sources of. of the, the slaves' experiences. What about the soldiers? Do they have time to to keep diaries, to write letters? Uh, the Confederate soldiers, at least, at the end of the war. Uh, yeah, there, there's there's a, there's quite a number. And um, once you go through these, and most of the work I've been doing lately is trying to look at the emotional impact of of people in this area because this is um this was a an area that was clogged with refugees starting in 1862 had fl- fled from the coast inland. Um, 120,000 Union and Confederate soldiers slamming into central North Carolina. So all of these emotional um, episodes are sort of vibrating in, in a close, densely packed area. And uh, most of these soldiers are, are so unsure about their fate. They are you know, so sad that through four years their sacrifices have been for naught. And it is a, it's a, a wonderful emotional to see how they contemplate their future and, and what the war meant. And, you know, walking away from stacking their arms in Greensboro, um, you see on these wonderful letters of these, these soldiers trying to figure out what they had just been through and what their future would look like. Well, let's take another short break, come back and talk more about the end of the war in central North Carolina, the surrender of Joe Johnston's army and the aftermath. We're talking today with Ernest Dollar. He's executive director of the City of Raleigh Museum. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. 
Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today is Ernest Dollar, Executive Director of the City of Raleigh Museum in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we've been talking about the end of the Civil War in Central North Carolina, where Raleigh is located. Um, Ernest, you... you uh, in, in connection with the museum, I wanted to ask about that uh, before forgetting about it. Does the, the the museum is about the history of the city in general? Does it have artifacts or uh, exhibits dealing with the Civil War era? We, we've got a few artifacts. Um, that's one of our part of our collection. I'm, I'm trying to bulk up since I've, I've started working here. But uh, I think we're getting ready for a major exhibit in 2015 on Sherman's occupation of Raleigh. Um, uh, you know, we've got a, a great collection of soldiers' letters, and with most of Sherman's army of about eighty some thousand camped around Raleigh for a couple of weeks, um, there's you know such a, a great collection to document almost daily life about where these guys are moving, what they're seeing, what they're thinking about, and you know the the physical residue is is all over Raleigh still. I mean, um, up in the state capitol, you find Union graffiti from the U.S. signal station that was on top of the, the capitol. Um, out of the state penitentiary, um, the, we have rocks that were carved with Union graffiti. So there's a bunch of neat, undiscovered remnants of, of Sherman's occupation of Raleigh, and we'd love to put that out in 2015 and show people what life was like at the end of the war in Raleigh. That makes me think, of of the the dangers of a an exhibit in Raleigh that has to do with anything to do with General Sherman. Uh, it, it, when I first came to East Carolina, the uh, professor John Tilley, who directs our public history program, uh, described for me in some detail the attempt to put a monument uh, to Union soldiers at the the Bentonville battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this was in the nineteen nineties or late eighties, and he. Uh, so there was a great deal of, of opposition. The proposed monument was a modest, uh, I think, abstract piece of granite to acknowledge that there were actually Yankees at the battle. Mm-hmm. But it was portrayed in the, the popular media letters to the editor as Sherman on a horse with a flaming sword with a baby stuck on it, um, something like that. Uh, so... And there was a lot of opposition, and the monument was, in fact, not built uh, at the time uh, because there were still memories or, or, or passed down, uh, transferred memories of Sherman in North Carolina. So I, I do ask seriously, do you, do you anticipate any negative pushback from an exhibit dealing with Sherman's time here? But, but don't you think, as a public historian, that's exactly what we love, is why something <laughs> like that, 150 years later, resonates so loudly? Um, and in that 
in itself kind of plays into the theme of the conversation about why have we forgotten this this part of history? I mean, did Sherman make war so bad? And he had talked about making war so terrible that generations would would resist coming to it. And sort of, it's curious to sort of look at this uh, Sherman's impact on this generational trauma that has been echoed down and down and down and sort of morphed and changed. But uh, certainly, I mean, I, I lecture a lot around the triangle, and it always pops up, you know, the discussion, was Sherman a war criminal? You know, that seems to be the number one question of late. But um, again, trying to unravel why this perception, and, and there's so many books written on on Sherman's march and sort of this memory of the march and how that's morphed through you know media and stuff. So um, I think that's going to be a component of this exhibit is sort of the legacy, the perceived legacy of Sherman's march. But uh, you and I both know Civil War buffs, and I, cer- I certainly know someone's going to come out and say something about a an exhibit on the federal occupation of Raleigh. But again, just kind of start that dialogue and find out why it is still such a, a touchy subject. Uh, it, it certainly is. It, it, it's one of those things that uh, is different from place to place, but a place where, where Sherman's army had actually been, like Central North Carolina, uh, is, is really where you're going to encounter more of that than almost anywhere else, I'm, I'm sure. It will be uh, it will be interesting. It, 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 you know, they say in Hollywood there's no such thing as bad publicity, but... Uh, we used to say it at the museum I worked in, but th- you could qualify that. There are things you don't want uh, being said about your museum. Uh, it, it, it can go go wrong, but it can be a powerful, powerful tool, as you say, uh, it, to, to highlight why the public still cares deeply about this. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I, I'd say those of us who do Civil War history have the advantage over our colleagues who... Uh, who focus on the history of the early Industrial Revolution. You just cannot get people, you know, to argue bitterly about the, uh, the you know, the invention of the shoe-pegging machine or something. Uh, so but I, th- I think this, this, this sort of Sherman as a still controversial figure is, is fascinating. And, you know, if you look at the, the, the Civil War as a whole, uh, I don't think I can find anything that sort of resonates deeply, so deeply to this day than Sherman's march through the South. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you've written a, a piece on the Battle of Morrisville Station. I'm looking at a, a copy of here. And I, I wanted to, to get down in the weeds briefly with what went on at the end of the war in, in terms of this. Because as, as I was reading this piece, uh, it it really reminds uh, the, the reader of the fact that uh, it's one thing to to die a heroic death at Shiloh, at uh, Gettysburg, at Murfreesboro, at a battle that people have heard of, but you're just as dead if you're killed in a, a really a meaningless skirmish uh, a week before the end of the war, mm-hmm. and your family suffers just as much, and and uh, the wounds are just as painful. Talk about this this particular skirmish. What what happened at Morrisville Station, and, and uh, why why do why ought we to remember it? Morrisville is again, as I mentioned earlier, is one of these small little towns that was popped up along the North Carolina Railroad early in the eighteen fifties. Um, the city had remained about the same size on up until the 1980s, until the research triangle really started going, and it's just sort of reemerged as sort of a bedroom community for the research triangle. 
um, their knowledge of their Civil War past had been largely forgotten. Um, and, you know, that's one of the places that, you know, I grew up near that I've just sort of been working to sort of bring back this story and represent the memory not only to people who live there, but sort of central North Carolina. And uh, right now we're, we're finding that parts of this battlefield are, are up for sale. So we're trying to, to bring in those preservation folks and preserve parts of this battlefield. But Mooresville is kind of interesting because it is one of these little skirmishes that sort of drifted into the fog of time but really straddles this sort of um, one foot still in the war and one foot in the peace. That is, as Johnston is sort of uh, the, the master strategist on the retreat, is sort of using the rail line to move his men. That um, uh, he's sort of leapfrogging supplies out of Raleigh and wounded going down the track to sort of keep up with his army. But on, a, on the 13th of April, when federal soldiers uh, capture Raleigh, and uh, Sherman has basically let his cavalry chief off the chain, uh, Judson Kilpatrick, with orders, you know, to push the rebels. And the only thing that stands between us and victory is the destruction of Johnston's army. So the the Union cavalry is is really amped up for a fight, and they they push the the federal, I mean, the Confederate rear guard pretty hard under Joseph Wheeler and Wade Hampton. So it is sort of a rolling series of battles from the state capital down the railroad to this little railroad town. And it's quite a dramatic little battle because uh, when the Confederates arrive, they find this uh, long train that's trying to pull up the long slopes out of Morrisville. And it's got some badly needed supplies for Johnston's retreating army, but it's also got boxcars filled with wounded soldiers who kind of were taken out of all of Raleigh's hospital. These are all the wounded from Bentonville and Avisboro, and trying to move them west. So the Confederates have to make a, a quick decision to defend this train, and um, they set up barricades around the depot. The Federals arrive. Uh, Kilpatrick organizes several regiments for charge. The artillery deploys and starts shelling the town. So as this train is starting to pull out, the, the Federals make a mad dash for the train, and, and the Confederate firepower had, had failed most of the day. But within this situation, they were able to put enough bullets in the air to turn back this Federal charge within 100 yards of the train. But the Confederates are still kind of stuck. This train's not making much much traction out of this sort of valley that Mooresville is in. So General Joseph Wheeler makes the call to uncouple the cars filled with supplies, allowing the wounded to move on and escape. But that night, as the Federals come in and sort of occupy the town, lick their wounds from the day's fighting, um, Confederate picket, uh, Confederate messengers come in under a white flag, and this is Johnston's first offer of an armistice to Sherman. So it is sort of the, the, at the very end of the war and the very beginning of the peace. So it's kind of an interesting little little town to sort of overlay the American Civil War. It's it's really a, a, a dramatic moment, as you say, with that train uh, pulling out. It, 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 as I was reading your account of it, I thought this is really a cinematic moment. The uh, decision to give up the the cars of supplies and lose uh, lose these valuable things in order to. Uh, get the wounded men out and, and make sure that they are safe. Um, so uh, I'm being greeted now by my happy dogs of coming to the uh, world headquarters here of Civil War Talk Radio. Now we're chasing them back out again. Um, 
but it, it, it's, it is a dramatic moment and, and a, a dramatic decision. And even with the war's outcome not in doubt, uh, you know, to those who are fighting, it is in doubt. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't know what will happen next. Right. And, and, so, and because we, this whole period has not really been studied, there are dozens of small skirmishes like this with soldiers dying that would, would never come home. And oftentimes, um, relatives would never know what happened to these these soldiers. Um, so it, it's kind of a, a, a quite an undiscovered corner of, of Civil War history. In in my own limited uh, journeying around this part of the country, around eastern North Carolina, uh, I've noticed an increased attempt to preserve Civil War sites. Certainly uh, the battlefield at New Bern is a great example of a uh, a beautifully preserved uh, piece of the battlefield that is in the middle of a housing development, basically. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, but the earthworks uh, have been nicely preserved. What uh, what sites would somebody coming to Raleigh want to to see uh, that that are still there? Uh, well, I think the uh, the state capitol has got to be the starting point. And uh, recently, the state capitol has. Um, has done something fairly unique to sort of get ready for the end of the sesquicentennial in Raleigh. Um, when when Union, Union soldiers busted in the door of the state capitol that morning of April 13th, they were shocked and amazed to see the rotunda of the capitol lined with American flags. And these were all war trophies from battlefields of Virginia and Pennsylvania and Tennessee. So the state capitol has sort of re, re, recreated that scene. So that would be a wonderful starting point. And they have some exhibits that deal with uh, uh, Raleigh's an occupied city. Um, across the street is the North Carolina Museum of History, which has a, a great exhibit on sort of a military timeline of North Carolina. Um, right in Raleigh, there's the Mordecai House, which is a plantation before the war by uh, owned by a Jewish family in Raleigh, the Mordecai's. So um, we we are very fortunate in this area to to have Raleigh and Morrisville and Durham and Chapel Hill and all these places on the Civil War trails map, and this is sort of a a move on recently for people in the Triangle to sort of to recognize the Civil War history, to promote it, and to to really look at it from a heritage tourism standpoint. And you know when I talk to people about Civil War preservation, Civil War history. Um, not everybody's got the warm and fuzzies for history like you and I do, <laughs> but everybody's got a wallet. So when we start talking about Civil War preservation as an economic engine, uh, we we tend to find more traction among folks in the Triangle. Well, that's certainly an argument we, we have to make in the, the preservation world and the history world in general. Um, how about your own uh, studies? Are you working on anything, uh, writing anything, uh, yeah. studying anything privately? What, what have you got going? Well, um, I'm just about to, hopefully, if God lets me, about to finish up a book on the end of the Civil War in North Carolina and basically trying to focus on the emotional experience of the soldiers and civilians. So, uh, you know, Mark Bradley has done a wonderful uh, treatise called This Astounding Close, and it's sort of a, a military history of this campaign to central North Carolina. And, you know, researching local history for 20 years, um, I, I put together sort of a similar chronology, but I kind of had to look at it and to sort of st- take it a step further and, and include more of the human element in this story. So I basically look at this time period and follow the armies, but sort of see 
how how these men are reacting, what emotions they're showing, uh, the civilians that they encounter, how are they dealing emotionally with these armies, um, especially the Confederates, how are they uh, dealing with surrender. And the more you start looking at some of these emotional episodes and, and sort of strange behaviors that um, uh, are due to sort of a post-traumatic stress disorder from these armies who have been slugging it out you know, for four years, it's a it's a very interesting path to sort of understand the emotional complexity of this time period. Well, it is a, a, a fascinating era, definitely. And as you say, it's one that has not been looked at closely enough, but we'll, uh, uh, I and the, the listeners to the show will certainly look forward to that book coming out and finding out more of what went on. Uh, in the meantime, listeners can visit, uh, as we've heard, the City of Raleigh Museum, also the North Carolina Museum of History. Uh, and uh, I guess Bennett Place would be uh, maybe the place to start. Certainly. The, you know, the site of Sherman and Johnston's surrender. And uh, one of the things that most listeners might know, that uh, the surrender between Sherman and Johnston was the largest of the American Civil War. Uh, Johnston had about 32, 36,000 soldiers with him, but he had control over the, the Carolinas, Georgias, and Florida. So when he inked the deal at the Bennett Place, 89,000 soldiers were included in that total. And so the Bennett Place is probably the best place to start and, and to work your way backwards from, from Durham to Raleigh. And then trace the uh, the last steps of the Civil War in Central North Carolina. Well, Ernest Sora, thank you very much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure learning about this little-known corner of the war. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on the show. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.